Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working side-by-side with leading scientists to better understand how complex data can be converted into innovative treatments. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anish Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about deep learning and cancer outcomes with Dr. Sanjay Anesia. Dr. Anesia is an assistant professor of therapeutic radiology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Sanjay, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and about your research. Sure. Uh, So uh, I've been in New Haven since 2009. I was actually a Yale medical student, um, and I stayed here for my residency and now on faculty. Um, Clinically, I am a radiation oncologist, and I primarily treat tumors of the central nervous system, so brain tumors, as well as some prostate cancer. Um, But I also run a large research group, which is primarily focused on applied mathematics. Uh, My background's in applied mathematics. It's always something that I was very interested in. And um, what we're particularly interested in in my lab is looking at um, the utility of machine learning learning techniques, uh, specifically deep learning uh, in improving cancer outcomes and modeling uh, cancer processes. Okay. So, yeah, I was with you all the way up to applied mathematics and machine learning and deep learning and and all of that sounds really deep. But can you break it down into simple terms for us? Like, what exactly are you doing? That's a good question. So, I think that what we're very interested in is that we have such a large amount of uh, healthcare data that's currently available to us that's been kind of cultivated over years of managing cancer patients. And what we'd like to do is develop methods to better model that data so that we can kind of use that information to better improve the healthcare outcomes for our cancer patients moving forward. Machine learning is just one way in which we do that. Traditionally, the way in which we used to model cancer as a, as a disease, it's always been a very difficult process, is that we would look at sort of factors that physicians thought were important, and then we'd put them in a model, and then we'd kind of look at an average. And that really had a couple different problems associated with it. One is that physicians aren't really great at predicting what factors are actually associated with cancer. It's a really complex disease. The second thing is that um, cancer is very difficult to model. And so, you know, using some of those techniques that we were developing, you know, a number of years ago, those techniques necessarily weren't necessarily as, uh, as effective. Machine learning is sort of uh, an advanced form of, of modeling data. What it does is it takes in all types of data, so it doesn't really uh, require the physician to make any sort of choices about what type of data to include, and it allows us to model very complex processes like cancer. And so there's been a lot of efforts within our group to show that machine learning methods are probably the best way in which we can model cancer outcomes. And so that's what we're particularly interested in. So can you give us an example of how you did that in your lab? Like, I kind of get the concept of um, taking large amounts of data, variables of various sorts that physicians may or may not think are relevant at all, giving it to a computer and saying, hey, look at all of this data and see whether or not any of these things or a combination of these things may actually predict a particular outcome. Am I on the right track? Yeah, definitely. I think the one benefit of machine learning compared to, you know, more traditional techniques of modeling cancer data is that it allows us to look at all the various resources that we have at our fingertips. So, Um, An example of a project that we've done in our lab is trying to model um, the outcomes for patients with early stage 
lung cancer. And so what we do in clinical practice is that we look at various different things when we're trying to model early stage lung cancer patients. We look at, you know, certain demographic variables like your age and if they're smoking and, and things of that nature. We also look at the images to see how big the tumor looks and, you know, whether or not it's close to any structures that we're worried about. And then we also look at, you know, what our treatment plans are and so how well we can deliver radiation to treat those. And so those are kind of three different data sources of, of sorts that we use in clinic in order to determine what whether or not a patient will have a good outcome or a bad outcome. And currently, the only models that we actually have to tell patients how their outcomes would be are using only demographic variables. And so they're not really using the pictures, and they're not really using the treatment planning information. And the reason for that is because that data isn't necessarily something that you can put into a um, into, a, uh, into some of those traditional models. Um, and so what we did is we developed a, a deep learning, machine learning algorithm. So it's an algorithm that takes the rawest form of the data from the electronic medical record. It pulls that demographic data from the electronic medical record. It takes every pixel from every picture of the tumor. It analyzes those pixels in a very unique way. And then it also looks at every little um, part of our radiation treatment plan down to the pixel level. It kind of coalesces all that information and derives a personalized prediction, which we found was better than, you know, sort of getting an average based on just the demographic variables alone. So basically, it it's taking all of this information, the clinical information that, you know, most clinicians would use, the imaging that they also use, but that they can't really put into a model because it's hard to define. Like, I see a big tumor. It looks like it's encasing some important vessels, but how do I really put that into a, quote, model and the treatment plan and can tell you kind of trying to be a clinician because a clinician will kind of look at that and have a gestalt of this patient will do well, this patient won't do so well. And the computer can kind of give you that in a more quantitative way. Is that right? Yeah, I think that you're touching upon one of the big um, advantages of these sorts of techniques. So one is that uh, they're an objective form. And so it's not necessarily, you know, utilizing one physician's experience versus another physician's experience. It's trying to use everyone's collective experience of analyzing data in, in an objective way. Um, the other thing that I think you're kind of touching upon is this idea of we're trying to mimic the same gestalt sort of uh, uh, predictions that, that physicians make. And that's the, another reason why a lot of people are very interested in machine learning is because there's this component of uh, artificial intelligence that can be kind of created when you are able to look at data sources without, um, you know, choosing which variables to, to evaluate. And so as you do that, so so in this project where you were looking at outcomes of early lung cancer and, and giving a machine the demographic data, the smoking data, the, the imaging data, the treatment plan data, and you found that it was able to predict outcomes in terms of survival or in terms of recurrence. Yeah, so we found that it was able to predict recurrence in various different ways, survival. And when we compared it to maybe just using traditional met methods or just one data stream, we found that it outperformed all of those different methods. And so this idea of combining everything together is very, very um, essential. And we kind of, you know, it's, it's very intuitive for clinicians to realize that you have to do that. But I think that it's, it's important to be able to do that in a, in a mathematical way as well. Did it outperform the best guess of a clinician? So instead of looking at just traditional models, we know that clinicians sometimes bring their own experience and expertise to the equation. Did you compare the machine learning to 
clinician's best guess of how well patients would do or not do? Yeah. So one thing that we've done is we've done we've done uh, studies that are looking at that. And similarly, what we've done is had multiple physicians uh, do their best guess. And the first thing that's important to know is that physicians don't guess the same. And so there's actually not a gold standard for a way in which a physician would actually evaluate a patient. And we found that it performed at least as well as an experienced clinician and better than um, maybe less experienced clinicians. And so that's really interesting, right? Because um, because in a sense, you're, you're recreating with this machine learning um, kind of the predictive ability of an experienced clinician. So how is that now being utilized or is it being utilized in the clinic? So I think that one of the benefits of the platform that we've developed is that it doesn't actually require us to pull data um, and, you know, input it into a calculator of sorts, which is uh, a lot of what we see with a lot of predictive uh, things in cancer. And so what we're interested right now is trying to connect ours to the electronic medical record. We've developed an iPhone application, which allows us to sort of... um, basically put in the medical record number of our patient, and then it allows us to pull the data natively, and then it allows us to kind of develop that prediction in the clinic. Um, And that's the next step of what we're trying to do. But I think the other thing that's really important whenever we're thinking about these machine learning algorithms is because they're so good at modeling healthcare data, they tend to actually um, model it too well. And so they, what we call overfit the data set. And so they sort of are very good at modeling Yale data, for example, but they might not be so good at modeling data from, I don't know, Chicago. And so what we're trying to do also is something called external validation, where we send our model to different, different cancer centers across the country and say, look, don't even tell us um, what the outcomes are. We'll tell you what our model's predicting, and then you tell us how good our model did. So far, our, our collaboration with Jefferson uh, in Philadelphia has shown that the model is very predictive, uh, and it's maintaining that same performance, but it's important to kind of stress test these models before we actually put them into clinical practice. Okay, agreed. Um, you know, how well something can predict is based on how well it learned and on the learning set that it had to work with. It, it makes sense, however, that the data that it was getting was objective data. It wasn't getting kind of, you know, uh, data that that may have had a lot of factors that were subjective, right? You were looking at imaging. Well, the image is what it is. And if you give that image to two different radiologists, they both should say roughly the same thing. Maybe not exactly, but roughly. And so you'd think that, you know, the Jefferson images are going to be images very much like Yale images. And so that may uh, account for for that close uh, uh, correlation between the two data sets. But the next question is, okay, let's suppose that the model, after you stress test it, and I, I don't want to minimize the utility of making sure that it's externally generalizable, um, is it even being used here at Yale where it was developed? And you know that it does well in terms of predicting outcomes as well as a, an experienced clinician. Is that being used in the clinic? Like, are you putting in this data? You've got now this iPhone application that can pull in this data into this model. The model can do its magic and tell you, you know, this is the recurrence rate. This is the survival rate. Are you using that in the clinic? And if so, How? Yeah, so I think that we're in the process of developing the application. One of the big hurdles, and with healthcare in general, is um, the ability to actually get access to the electronic medical record in in a way in which you can make an application kind of seamlessly integrate into it. And so it's somewhat difficult for us to do that. It's something that we're working with a a software engineering firm to actually help us with. It's a little bit beyond the scope of what our 
our our lab does typically. And so um, and so that's where we're at right now with respect to actually integrating into clinical practice. I think that right now what we have is we have an ability to kind of look back on patients. And if there was a patient, for example, who wanted to have a prediction, we could actually generate that. Um, but we cannot do it um, in the electronic medical record as of right now. It's something that we're ongoing. And so when you think about the potential utility of, of this, where do you see it going? It's a good question. So I think that um, one thing that I think is very important is as we're kind of developing so many different genres of treatment for cancer patients, there's this increasing need for us to develop methods to risk stratify them and identify the highest risk patients who maybe would be benefiting from more aggressive treatment, more aggressive follow-up. And similarly, I think we found with some types of cancers that maybe we've been a little bit too aggressive in our follow-up or too aggressive with our therapy and trying to better risk stratify which of those patients would be most useful for a certain intervention versus another one is something that I think our um, our algorithm or our, our, our platform would be very useful for. So specifically for early stage lung cancer patients, there's currently a clinical trial that's evaluating whether or not those patients should get radiation and then additional treatment on top of that. Because there's this idea that potentially, you know, additional immunotherapy, for example, would be helpful for those patients. A large amount of them may not need that because they're already, you know, going to have great outcomes anyways. And a large amount of them maybe would need that and they should get it very, uh, they should get it maybe right after treatment before we even know how the outcomes are. And so if we can identify which patients are those high-risk patients versus those low-risk patients, I think we could potentially tailor our treatments and better understand sort of the way in which we can kind of personalize care based on someone's you know, images and, and everything else. So I get that concept of, you know, risk stratification, especially for additional therapy. Um, what, what would be interesting, though, is to really look at how do patients do without any therapy? Uh, how do patients do with therapy X versus therapy Y? Um, and how can we really personalize uh, therapies uh, given the data that we have? We'll take a short break for a medical minute, but when we come back, we'll answer those questions. So stay tuned to learn more about deep learning and cancer outcomes with my guest, Dr. Sanjay Anasia. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about pancreatic cancer, which represents about 3% of all cancers in the U.S. and about 7% of cancer deaths. Clinical trials are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers for the treatment of advanced stage and metastatic pancreatic cancer using chemotherapy and other novel therapies. Fulfirinox, a combination of five different chemotherapies, is the latest advance in the treatment of metastatic pancreatic cancer, and research continues at centers around the world looking into targeted therapies and a recently discovered marker, HENT1. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Sanjay Anasia. We're discussing deep learning in cancer outcomes, and right before the break, Dr. Anasia was telling us about how he and his lab have really used machine learning, that is to say applied mathematics and complicated computational models to really take in lots and lots of data that clinicians use in their usual clinical gestalt um, to predict outcomes for 
cancer patients. And Sanjay, you know, the example that you gave us in early lung cancer, um, where you said, you know, we took the demographics, we took the imaging data, but then we took the treatment plan. And we used that, and we asked the, the computer to look at these things down to the pixel level and then predict outcomes. And it was very good at predicting those outcomes, um, as good as an experienced clinician. And that's great. But my question is, well, what happens if you, if you don't – how do you get rid of the treatment part of that um, – and predict outcomes without treatment to kind of get at the idea of are we over-treating some patients? Um, because if the computer doesn't have that, if all patients are treated and that's the basis on which it learned, how, how do you take out one part of that model? Oh, that's a good question. And, and it's something that I think that um, is not impossible. So I think that um, if we remove the treatment piece of it and just look at the images and the demographic data, so basically pre-treatment information, we find that the model is actually quite predictive as well. Uh, it just improves significantly if we know exactly what types of treatments we provided for the patients. And so another example of a study that we've done, which only uses pre-treatment imaging, has been evaluating lymph nodes in head and neck cancer patients. We were attempting to look at which lymph nodes we saw um, you know, on CT imaging actually had the presence of cancer. And we wanted to identify that so that maybe, you know, what we could do is more tailor the therapy for head and neck cancer patients. Oftentimes, head and neck cancer patients, when we think that their lymph nodes don't have cancer, we have them undergo surgery. And then when we find lymph node, uh, those lymph nodes that have cancer, they have to get radiation and chemotherapy altogether. And so if we were able to identify the patients ahead of time that have cancer in their lymph nodes, then what they would have instead is just chemotherapy and radiation. They'd save themselves some surgery. And so that's an example of when we've used pretreatment imaging to sort of um, reduce potential extra care or, or, or care that maybe would not be necessary um, or could have been avoided. And so do we have data sets with patients who – um, we're treated in different ways so that we can predict, given pretreatment data, if you got treatment A, you will do this well. If you got treatment B, you will do that well. And if you got treatment C, you will do this well. And if you got no treatment, you would do just as well as any of the above. Yeah, so that actually um, kind of touches upon something that we're really actively exploring in our lab, something that we're very excited about. So one thing that, you know, uh, you know we've, we've kind of indicated is that, that these machine learning algorithms, these deep learning algorithms, are extremely good at analyzing pictures. And so one thing that we've looked at is this idea of what we call digital twins. So based on your pretreatment imaging, nothing else, no demographics, just what your, your tumor looks like, if we could find your what we call digital twin or someone whose tumor looks exactly like yours or a digital family, which is maybe a group of five people that are like that. And we can use deep learning to do that. And then what we can do is we can see, okay, among your digital twins who or your digital family who got one type of treatment, this is what their outcome was. And among your digital family who got another type of treatment, this is what their outcome was. And then they can make a more informed decision about what they would actually want to do. But, you know, we talk a lot on this show about tumor heterogeneity and different kinds of cancer and tumor biology and all kinds of other things that are completely outside of a picture um, that seem to really affect biology. It seems to affect outcomes. So how is it that you can use that data without knowing all of the other things? That's a great question. Um, I think that, for one, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that deep learning algorithms can actually predict 
changes in tumors up to the genomic level, so genetic mutations in tumors based off of the pictures, because we have to appreciate that they're really evaluating every tumor at a very, very small level, every little pixel. And each pixel has a variety of different intensities, and so they're really looking at the data in a close level. Um, so in lung cancer, as well as in brain tumors, and, um, and also in some lymphomas, there's been evidence to suggest that deep learning algorithms on the diagnostic images can predict genomic changes. So like driver gene mutations that we would actually use to, to that would actually maybe presumably need sequencing information for. And so then that suggests that the pictures actually have a lot more information than we think. But I do think that you're, you're kind of right in one way that, that maybe it's not just the pictures that tell the whole story. But the idea is that people whose, whose tumors look similar, they likely have similar genomic backgrounds. So, you know, I, I'm still puzzled by this whole concept because, you know, we think about a CT scan or a mammogram or an MRI, and each of these has its own pitfalls. There are false positives on these images. There are false negatives on these images. So it, it kind of makes me a little wary to put so much faith just in the images. How do you explain that? Yeah, I think that, um, unfortunately, I guess one of the, the limitations or one of the important caveats to any sort of machine learning project is that your your outcomes are only as good as your data. And so if we have a lot of false positives in our data set that we have not you know, addressed and we haven't identified, then I think that it's really important that we understand that the machine learning algorithm will learn those same errors. So similarly, any sort of biases that we have, maybe we have a bias towards overcalling something on a on an image or overdiagnosing something on an image, those similar biases will be promulgated through our machine learning algorithms. It's actually somewhat of an interesting topic um, in, in the context of machine learning outside of healthcare is that we find that a lot of machine learning algorithms, they, they mimic the same biases and, and, and discriminatory ab- discrimination abilities that, that, um, that, that people have in regular practice. And so a lot of the algorithms that have been used in law enforcement, we find that are actually, you know, maybe promulgating some of the parts of our, our law enforcement system that we don't want. Hmm. And so, at, you know, one way to kind of get around that one would think, is to use more data, not just the images, but get down to the genomic level. Do the biopsy. We've got biopsies on most tumors before we ever treat them. Um, So look at the pathologic information. Look at the genomic information. We can get a lot of sequencing data these days. And speaking of which, it's really hard to understand what all of these different mutations are when we think about whole exome sequencing. I mean, I would think that machine learning might have a role to play there, too. Oh, certainly. I think that machine learning in general uh, is probably one of the more common approaches to evaluate genomic data now because the the genome is so complex and it's so difficult for us to kind of understand that I think the machine learning algorithms are, are, are maybe the most common ways in which we analyze that sort of uh, sort of information. Now, specifically with respect to deep learning, which is sort of um, what our lab is particularly interested in, it's a specific type of machine learning method, it, it's somewhat difficult to evaluate genomic information with that data. Um, and the reason, I mean, with that method. And the reason for that is because we don't actually have a huge data set right now at our, at our disposal of genomic information. Because in order to do some of these analyses, we need upwards of a thousand patients. And so it's difficult to get a thousand patients with tumors, images, and and, um, and whole exome sequencing. Um, but it's possible, and I, I would 
you know, I would venture that a place like Yale is the place that, that would have that ability to do that. Or or some of these cooperative groups, right? Like there are, uh, for our listeners, um, there are clinical trials that happen all across the country, sometimes all across the world, with cooperative groups, these groups of clinicians, physicians, who are all putting their patients on exactly the same clinical trial. Um, and taking their data, putting it in a central repository where all of that can be studied. And Sanjay, I would think that that would be an ideal place for you to get that data. Oh, certainly. And so, you know, one effort of our our research group um, is actually sort of engaging with cooperative groups. There's two that we've sort of begun engaging with, um, the NRG, which is a a large group that has a lot of radiation data, as well as the Southwest Oncology Group, what's also known as SWOG, in order to sort of develop um, an infrastructure within the the organization to evaluate um, uh, machine learning techniques and utilize machine learning techniques. Because, you know, a lot of what we have, what we've designed these clinical trials and these repositories that these these cooperative groups, um, a lot of their infrastructure wasn't made for these sorts of analyses because they weren't necessarily thinking that this was something that was going to come in the horizon five, ten years later. And so one thing that we're working right now is with SWOG and with, with NRG to develop that sort of infrastructure. The first process of that is developing something that allows us to get the imaging data very easily. Images are sort of an easy, an easier method for us to evaluate uh, machine learning methods because one, it is, uh, it's been shown to be the most effective in image analysis uh, across uh, various industries, uh, healthcare, technology, et cetera. And secondly, imaging uh, in healthcare has a standardized data format. It's a common data model. So there's no difficulty about like, well, so-and-so in California stores their data one way and then we store it a different way, et cetera, et cetera. So... One thing that you mentioned, which I, I, I still have to go back to, is you said that you're interested in deep learning, uh, which is a type of machine learning that is um, particularly well-suited to imaging. Tell us the difference between deep learning and machine learning. Yeah, that's a good uh, that's a good question. So there's sort of, um, you know, the words artificial intelligence, machine learning, and deep learning sort of get thrown around together, and it's difficult to parse them out. I think that um, machine learning is, is a broad a broad discipline of various types of mathematical techniques to model data. Um, deep learning is just one of those techniques. Now, the difference between deep learning and other traditional machine learning techniques is that other machine learning techniques require um, you know, inputs that are called features. And so they can only handle data that comes in a, in a featured uh, format. So sort of predictor variables that you're interested in, demographic variables or variables from the electronic medical record. Deep learning um, is particularly unique in that it doesn't actually require data that at all from a human. It doesn't require any sort of human interaction. It can learn those features on its own as long as it has access to what they call the sensor, so where the data is generated. So as data is being generated in real time, deep learning algorithms can analyze it, identify those features that are very important, so those predictors that are important, and then essentially create predictions. How how exactly does this happen? Like, I'm somebody's got to program this thing, right? Yes. So, um, yes, it is programmed uh, typically in Python. Um, And so the way that the process works for developing a deep learning algorithm is first you have a set of, of training data and the associated labels to that data. So you already have um, data with outcomes that you know, and that's the process that you're trying to predict. And then what you do is you design your deep learning algorithm um, using a complex series of what they call neural networks. And what we do is we kind of train the algorithm by looking at each of those 
training data set labels um, to identify sort of patterns in the data. And it takes a, a significant amount of time and a huge amount of computational resources in order to do that. So deep learning algorithms that we develop in our lab oftentimes take weeks to train. And so we just let it run all week and let it train every single time. And every, every piece of information that it gets, it looks at the outcome and it tries to learn a little bit more from it. And so – and then presumably – so you design this algorithm. Uh, you let it run. Uh, the machine tries to learn what it can to try and improve its prediction each time. And then you test it. Mm-hmm. On a separate set. Yes, exactly. And so in order for this to be utilizable, I, I mean, because I'm, I'm thinking about how this can be utilized in the clinic um, in terms of, you know, one day you may walk into a clinic, uh, have your CT scan, have your biopsy, uh, fill out uh, some paperwork on your demographics. And I can imagine a time when all of that information is put into a computer or stored in a computer. This algorithm runs in the background and spits out uh, to the clinician, this patient's prognosis is X, uh, the ideal treatment out of uh, A, B, and C is B, um, you know, uh, and that kind of thing. I could see that happening in the future. I think that we're a little bit far away from complete automation in that way, um, and partially because I think that we don't have a good hold on um, on, a, on the data that we, we think is the most important, and we don't have a good way of storing all of that information. Um, but I think that, that, that it's not something that I, I, would, I would be surprised we're doing in five, ten years. Dr. Sanjay Anesia is an assistant professor of therapeutic radiology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.